Hello, and welcome back to Over My Dead Pod. I'm Kylie Caldwell. I'm Kate Carter. And I'm Holly Spear. And I'm going to bring you guys a bit of an ethical, a bit educational, and a whole lot of gross case today out of Texas. But before you see why, I'm going to hop right in, starting on March 27th, 2004. On the house phone of Sherry and Paul Bourne, there was a voicemail from their former son-in-law, Andre Thomas, saying, quote, um, Sherry, this is Andre. I need y'all's help. Something bad is happening to me, and it keeps happening. I don't know what's going on. I need some help. I think I'm in hell. I need help. Somebody needs to come and help me. I need help bad. I'm desperate. I'm afraid to go to sleep. So when you get this message, come by the house, please. Hello? Okay, so, bad vibes. Scary vibes already. Very bad vibes right there. So Paul Bourne promptly drove the eight blocks to his daughter's apartment, which she shared with her new boyfriend and her two young kids. He found the door was broken in. He walked in to find Lauren sprawled out on the living room floor, covered in blood with a huge piece of her chest missing. Her like entire chest cavity was just open. Beside her leg on the floor was a dollar bill folded only to show the pyramid. Paul then walked further into the apartment to find his two grandchildren in a similar state. Four-year-old Andre Jr. was lying in bed. 13-month-old Leah was on the floor next to a baby doll. Both children were also covered in blood with giant wounds to their chest. This is the death row story of Andre Lee Thomas. Sorry, I just didn't, this, like, you went right into a story with people missing their chests. I didn't expect that. You you said it was going to be gross, but, like, okay, all right. Is this the first death row story that we have, too? I think so. I, I think so. I think it this is. is. In order to understand the horrors of what happened, we need to rewind and take a closer look at Andre Thomas Sr.'s early life. I'm just going to call him Andre, his baby, baby Andre. So Andre was born on March 17, 1983 in Muskogee County, Oklahoma, to an alcoholic father and a mentally ill mother who were struggling to take care of their six sons. The Thomas house rarely had running water, heat, or electricity. Despite all the challenges, Andre's mother tried her best and took her six sons to different towns and states, eventually settling in Sherman, Texas. Andre never seemed to let all this commotion phase him. Everyone described him as super intelligent. He was in the gifted and talented program at his school, and he was also heavily involved in his local church. People described a young Andre as a tinkerer. People in his life always saw him playing with cars, designing his own, and then building toy cars from his designs all by himself. But something shifted when Andre turned 10, and he started telling his friends that he could hear angels and demons. Andre started claiming that he was Raiden, a character from the game Mortal Kombat. Andre also started lashing out by drinking and smoking weed, and by the age of 12, he was put on probation. By 13, Andre had already attempted to commit suicide twice. By 15, he had been arrested a few more times, and after being arrested for stealing a car, Andre was placed on suicide watch while in the juvenile detention center. But get this, despite being on suicide watch, Andre never received any mental health services or was seen by any sort of doctor. Red flags all over the place for the government. This is so bad. I mean, what you said he was, what, 12, 12 years old when he first started probation? Mm-hmm. Ah, and all the mental health stuff you've already said. Okay, this is so bad. So at some point during all of this, Andre began dating Lauren Bourne. And I couldn't really find much about Lauren, but something important in this case for listeners is that Lauren is white and Andre is black. And that's just a little hint of what is to come. In 1998, when Lauren and Andre were 15, Lauren discovered she was pregnant. 
between finding out the couple is going to have a child, Andre Jr. being born in August of 1999, Andre had been expelled from school and attempted to commit suicide by scratching the skin off his wrist. But the two were determined to make it work and even got married on Andre's 18th birthday in 2001. They soon after moved into Lauren's parents' house, but after only two weeks, they were kicked out. I couldn't really find anything why they were kicked out, but Lauren ended up staying at her parents with the baby, and Andre moved in with one of his brothers. And only after four months of marriage, the two separated. So Andre's already troubling mental health got even worse after the separation, and Andre became downright obsessed with not only the Bible, but specifically the book of Revelation. If you aren't acquainted with the book, don't worry, because I wasn't. Fun fact, the Bible is on Cliff Notes. So it is about the apocalypse in which God will return, uh, destroy all evil, and set up a new order for the righteous to live for eternity. So while Andre is still hearing voices and obsessively studying the Bible, he can't keep a job and he keeps getting into trouble. On January 27, 2002, Andre was arrested on an assault charge. He self-reported at intake that he drinks at least two 40-ounce beers a day and has a history of suicide attempts. He was released. Exactly a year later, Andre was accused of stabbing his brother. It isn't exactly clear what happened, but I'm assuming from what I gathered that Andre's brother also suffered from severe mental health issues. The brother, I guess, believed that Andre's loud music was sending evil spirits through the walls to his room. And the two got into a fight, which ended up with Andre stabbing him. Andre was arrested, but was not indicted, and his brother was committed for psychiatric treatment. So at this point, Lauren started limiting Andre's visitation with his son because Andre couldn't pay to keep his utilities on. Along with the fact that Lauren had moved on with a new boyfriend who she was having a child with, Andre's psychosis worsened even more. Andre believed that Lauren was Jezebel and his own son was the Antichrist. In the book of Revelations, Jezebel is an evil woman who is commonly known as the Whore of Babylon. Andre also believed that the meaning of life could be found in the pictures of the $1 bill. For weeks at a time, Andre would cover his mouth with duct tape and refuse to speak to anyone. In the spring of 2004, Andre began abusing cold medicine, and he would mix that with his alcoholic beverages. This is where it gets a little more frustrating, because on March 5th, 2004, a friend did try to step in, and he took Andre to a local mental health clinic. Andre told the staff that if he couldn't speak with someone, he was going to step in front of a bus, and if they didn't shoot him, he would do it himself. Instead of admitting Andre, they told him to go to an emergency room, and they would prepare an emergency detention order in the meantime. Andre walked off. A judge did execute an emergency detention order, but Andre never went to the emergency room, and no one ever went to go look for him or check in on him. So the very next day after this, Andre's aunt died from lung disease. Other family members described him as Andre's like confidant and like really best friend in the family. So this was likely the final breaking point. On March 25th, 2004, two days before the murders, Andre stabbed himself in the chest while high on cough medicine. At the hospital, he told the staff he was trying to cross over into heaven, and a nurse wrote down in his file that he was psychotic. After being treated for the non-life-threatening stab wound, hospital staff were arranging for a psychiatric commitment, but Andre just simply walked out of the hospital. The hospital did call police, alerting them that Andre might be dangerous. Police never went to go look for Andre. Who walked the 10 miles home on foot. This is a crazy story. This is very, and this is very frustrating. Not necessarily seen, but he's literally been begging for help. Yeah. He's yeah. seen countless professionals and has received zero help. This is definitely one of those cases where that, I mean, this has to be one of the max cases right now of like the system failing. 
So about 24 hours later, after walking out of that hospital, Andre, at only 21 years old, packed three knives into his pockets and headed to Lauren's apartment. He kicked in the door to the third floor apartment and began stabbing Lauren in the living room. He cut open her chest and pulled out one of Lauren's lungs, mistaking it for her heart. Andre then went into one of the bedrooms where his own four-year-old son and Lauren's other child, 13-month-old Leo, were. He proceeded to stab them both, cutting their hearts out. He then went back to the living room, stabbing himself in the chest three times before laying down next to Lauren's body, hoping that they would die together. After realizing that his own wounds weren't going to kill him, Andre got up, put Lauren's lungs and the kid's hearts in his pockets, and walked home. He then threw the organs in the trash before calling Lauren's parents and leaving that voicemail. We're obviously, there's lots of mental health issues going on and a lot of other stuff too, but like a big flag is definitely schizophrenia, right? Like that has to be, especially with the voicemail that he left to the parents saying like, I'm in hell, you know, like he thinks things are happening that are not happening. Andre turned himself into the Sherman police department, telling detectives he thought God wanted him to kill Lauren, Andre Jr. and Leah. He said he killed each of them with a different knife because God wouldn't want there to be any cross-contamination and if their blood mixed, the demons might survive. After Andre underwent surgery to repair his own heart, where he stabbed himself, he was put into the local jail. He removed his right eye with his bare hands. Andre allegedly quoted a few Bible passages, such as Matthew 5, 29, which says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. In Mark 9, 47, which says, and if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Soon after, Andre was sent to the North Texas State Hospital, where he was officially diagnosed with having schizophrenia and declared incompetent to stand trial. Only 47 days later, Andre was sent to Vernon State Hospital, where a psychiatrist wrote to the court that Andre did not have schizophrenia. Instead, the psychiatrist stated Andre was only in a drug-induced psychosis at the time of the crime and that he was competent to stand trial. This is like this case. I know that the listeners can't see me, but this case is just so hard to listen to and is blowing my mind and is honestly pissing me off. Oh, it gets worse. Oh my God. Now we're going to talk about Andre's trial. So this began February 15, 2005. It is still ongoing. No, it's not. 2005? Mm-hmm. Wow. We're almost on 20 years. So on February 15, 2005, couldn't really figure out why, but Andre was only tried for the murder of baby Leia, not for the murder of Lauren or his own son. Kind of conspiracy thought processes maybe... The court was trying to figure out, or the prosecutor was trying to figure out if this, you know, mental competency would stand up. And if it did, then he would be tried for the murder of Lauren and Andre Jr. But I really can't figure out why. Wow, yeah, that's that, so weird. That's so weird. I don't understand. And you can't find anything else on that? No. That makes no sense. It wouldn't matter because this trial was pretty much rigged from the start. The jury of 12 of Andre's peers were all white. Three of those jurors plus one alternate, stated in their questionnaires that they were opposed to interracial marriages and children. One juror even wrote down, quote, I don't believe God intended for this. We should stay with our bloodline. All right. This is just, this is, (laughs) this is a lot. So you may be wondering how these jurors were selected because I sure was. And I went down a little rabbit hole and I would like to introduce you guys to a rule in Texas called the jury shuffle. I believe this is Texas specific. 
So under the rules of jury shuffle, when all of the potential jurors are brought in a room, they're arranged and those in the front are the ones that are chosen to serve on the jury. Either the prosecutor or the defense may shuffle how the, how the potential jurors are seated, but only once. They must do this after the potential jurors fill out their questionnaires, but before questioning them directly. This sounds like racist musical chairs. Yeah, <laughs> racist musical chairs. That's what it should be called. Yeah, so in a sense, and I think this is what happened here. I'm not entirely sure. They filled out the questionnaires. The defense shuffled, tried to get the racist people in the back. The prosecution just shuffles and puts them right back in the front. And then that's that. Is this shuffle still a thing in Texas? It's still a thing. And there is countless organizations and people trying to get it abolished. All right. All the races up front, please. You know, like that's literally mind blowing. The amount of probably cases and trials that have been determined because of that. The prosecutor on Andre's case ADA Carrie Ashmore, just in the year before Andre's case started, used the jury shuffle to obtain death sentences for five Black defendants with an all-white jury on every single one of them. So Mr. Carrie Ashmore also broke a Texas law during Andre's trial. So Texas law, like many others, forbids the prosecution or defense from telling the jury what will happen to a defendant if they are deemed not guilty due to insanity. So they can't mention that they will be sent to a state hospital, which is what will happen, or that they will be allowed to roam free, which is not true. If a defendant is found not guilty due to reason of insanity, they are still technically incarcerated for an indefinite amount of time, psychiatric hospital, and they will stay there until they are deemed ready to reenter society. Ashmore, in his closing statement, told the jury, quote, are you going to take the risk that if you were to be if he were to be released or sentenced to life and later released on parole, that he might ask your daughter out or your granddaughter out. How did he get away with that, though? I don't know. He's not the only one to blame because court-appointed defense counsel, R.J. Haggard, did not question or challenge the jurors, even after seeing their racist questionnaire responses. He also didn't challenge to strike the psychiatrist's statement about Andre being in a drug-induced psychosis. And he didn't object to the prosecution statement about what would happen to Andre if he was found not guilty due to insanity. So Andre was in what people described as a catatonic state during the trial, not Mm. looking at any of the gruesome crime scene photos. He just chose to eat Skittles instead. In the end, Andre Thomas was convicted of capital murder of Leah and given the death sentence. So while on death row and in solitary confinement, Andre continued to hear voices and began hallucinating demons coming out of the cell walls. In July of 2008, Andre cut his neck with some sort of sharp sharp object, attempting to commit suicide once again. He ultimately only ended up needing eight stitches. In October of 2008, the Texas Court of Appeals upheld Andre's conviction. Judge Kathy Cochran wrote in her final opinion, quote, Although reasonable people might well defer on the questions of whether this applicant was sane at the time he committed these murders or competent at the time he was tried, those issues were appropriately addressed by the defense, the prosecution, trial judge, and the jury during the trial. This is a sad case. Applicant is clearly crazy, but he is also sane under Texas law. What? He is crazy, but also sane. No, I don't even want to start. I'm not even going to say anything bad about Texas, but like, is this a Texas thing? Like, do they just have, I live in Florida. I know Florida's crazy, but like, is Texas also crazy? Like the fact that it is now still early 2000s, but you're getting closer to like 2010 and he's clearly mentally disabled, has multiple issues going on with him, including schizophrenia. 
And even doctors are like debating on whether or not he's sick. One doctor who's saying he's not in the process. Oh, everybody else said yes? Yeah. Oh, so they're just going to listen to that one doctor then. The prosecution just, you know, cherry picking the doctors and the defense is not attempting to strike it. I mean, I feel no, I mean, obviously like I feel a bit horrible for the, the ex-girlfriend and the two children, but I feel really bad for Andre, especially because this is stemming from his family. After this decision, Andre removed his left eye at the time, his only eye with his own hand and swallowed it. He told officers and hospital staff that he was trying to prevent the government from reading his thoughts. I mean, it should be evidence enough that he's insane since he's it's not just harming other, it's not an act. He's obviously, you know, he's, he plucked in this one. I'm assuming he just plucked out again, like he did with his other one and swallowed it. Okay. Not mentally crazy though. Not mentally crazy. No, no. Just drug induced psychosis, even though he has no access, no drugs, any drugs anymore. So things were kind of quiet for a little while until 2021. Andre did get a new attorney, Catherine Carroll, who appealed his conviction once again. Catherine argued that Andre's counsel was ineffective, no shit, in not challenging the jurors and not requesting a competency hearing. She also argued since Andre is now blind, he is no longer a danger. The prosecution did finally admit that there was some evidence of Andre's mental illness, but that he wasn't insane. The U.S. Court of Appeals upheld his conviction. Later on, on October 11, 2011, the Supreme Court of the United States declined to hear Andre's appeal. The dissenting judges did give some, what I think, important quotes about Andre and his conviction. And of course, it's our favorite ones. So this quote is from Justices Kagan, Jackson, and Sotomayor. They said, by failing to challenge or even question jurors who are hostile to interracial marriage in a capital case involving that explosive topic, Thomas's counsel performed well below an objective standard of reasonableness. This deficient performance prejudiced Thomas by depriving him of fair trial. Sotomayor said that the case involved a heinous crime apparently committed by someone who suffered severe psychological trauma, but said no jury deciding whether to recommend a death sentence should be tainted by potential racial biases that could infect its deliberations or decisions. On November 11th, 2022, with his eyelids now surgically sewn shut, Andre Thomas was scheduled to be executed on April 5th, 2023. Little fun fact, if you weren't mad enough already, The Texas courts and the Court of Criminal Appeals have found that the majority of mentally ill defendants are sane and knew what they were doing, making it legal to sentence them to death. So in February of 2023, a clemency position was filed with Texas Governor Greg Abbott, which included letters of support from dozens of Texas Texas mental health professionals and over a hundred pastors. Greg Abbott didn't grant the clemency. I wish you guys could see Kate. She's just pulling her hair out. I feel like we're going to have to take screenshots of this week's videotaping because this is just so I have I have a big issue when it comes to to this kind of stuff. But Andre's attorneys did not give up. On March 7th, 2023, a Grayson County District Judge recalled the warrant of execution and is allowing both sides until July 5th, which is the day this episode airs, to determine Andre's competence and file their arguments but we likely won't have a decision for a couple weeks or maybe even a couple months after that. I'm driving to Texas. ADA Carrie Ashmore is still standing this ground that Andre is competent and should be executed. When asked about the clemency petition, Ashmore said, quote, 
None of these people know anything about the case. They are parroting what the defense told them. Just look at this and know, just look at this guy and know that it's not. And I think it's pretty clear this guy's not sane. So Texas law does require some sort of competency for the death penalty. And their definition of competency is, quote, the person must know he or she will be executed. It is imminent. And why? That's competency. That is the full standard. In defense of this, ADA Ashmore told reporters, quote, he was anxious about the U.S. Supreme Court, whether they were going to hear this case. He's indicated that he knows his execution date is in April. He's also indicated that if the Supreme Court decided to execute him, he would stop taking his medication. These type of things that we've been able to find out indicate to me that he's competent to be executed. Little afterthoughts. Lauren's family did end up suing the medical center that released Andre two days before the murders, alleging that they were negligent in allowing Thomas to leave. The medical center countered that they couldn't have foreseen the murders, and the court sided with them, dismissing the lawsuit. In the end, no matter what your stance is on the death penalty, this is just outrageous. So in 2002, the Supreme Court ruled in Atkins v. Virginia that executing people with intellectual disabilities violated the Eighth Amendment prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. The Supreme Court has declined to hear any cases on whether or not it's also cruel and unusual to execute people who are mentally ill. I am so angry right now. (laughs) I am fuming. There is steam coming out of my ears. What something that in a past job of mine, a past internship of mine that Kylie also shared as well is we worked on trying to get mental health more available inside of the federal court system. And just to see in 2000 and what was it? 2021, that that was still lacking so hard was super sad. But just to think like, we really haven't come that far. I mean, this guy has now been on trial for 20 years, has done so much damage to himself physically. We know for a fact, everyone listening to this knows for a fact that he has some type of disability when it comes to his mental status. Like there, you cannot argue that. So the fact that this is still going through and people are fighting against it saying like, no, he deserves to be executed. He deserves to be executed. It's bullshit. It's totally bullshit. Totally feel bad for the victims, but this is something that could have been preventable. No. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many things going on. Right. I mean, it's like not just the death penalty, but it's the violation of his civil right with the jury and things like that. And the fact that he, it's obvious he's insane. There's just so many things going on that it's just, and from the get-go, I feel like it was completely just unfair. Every and step he, of the way was yeah, every unfair. single step of the way. Yeah. But what's unfortunate too, is like, I know this, she, Kylie briefly talked about it, but like it said that his, both of his parents were had issues. One was alcoholic. One was had was mentally ill. And then he had five other siblings, um, all brothers, which that just makes me like want to do research on the rest of his family and see where they are, you know, and how much Mm -hmm. trouble they probably have gotten in, in the past 20, 25 years, mental health and, and the system started screwing him at 12 years old, like 12 years old and on probation it happened again at 13, 15. He was kicked out of high school, self-harmed multiple times, like had four or five attempted suicides, right? You know, so mm-hmm. like, that's just, there's so many things that could have been prevented. He screamed for help multiple times in mental health facilities and hospitals. Nobody helped him. Everybody turned him down. He did something absolutely atrocious, but he was, he had to have been in a schizophrenic like phase when that was happening. Point, it's like only harm 
of yourself, you know, it didn't seem right. like he had that point that should, I mean, it should have never been allowed to go that far where he was a danger to other people when he was obviously a danger to himself. If you go to a mental health clinic or you go to a hospital and you say, help me, otherwise I'm going to commit suicide by jumping in front of a bus, they legally have to help you. And they also legally have to call the cops like that. The fact that he could just walk out of the hospital and then two days later, this happened. Like I, I, a hundred percent get the victim's parents suing the hospital, you know, like that makes sense. This case is just so messed up. Fortunately, like I said, I couldn't find much about Lauren or really her family's thoughts other than that lawsuit. 20 years old, trying to be the best mother for her two young children whose lives ended way too soon from a very, very preventable crime. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Over My Dead Pod. If you want even more information about the case, um, including some, actually, no, I'm not going to include photos. Um, Check out OverMyDeadPod.com. And don't forget to leave a review and subscribe wherever you're listening to us. We'll see you all next week with another true crime case. And with that, I hope you guys have something a little more uplifting for overtime. I don't. I don't. don't? So that's just, that was a real, that was a bummer. This one, it's kind of good news. On March 6, 2015, 17-year-old Rudolph, who goes by Rudy Farias, was reported missing in Houston after he failed to return home after walking his dogs. The two dogs were found. Don't worry, Kate. But Rudy wasn't. Until this past week, now 25 years old, Rudy was found unresponsive at a church covered in cuts, bruises, and blood. He's now at a local hospital receiving treatment, but he has not spoken about what happened to him. His mother told um, reporters that he will only say a few words and then go into a fetal position. So we really have no idea what has happened over the last eight years. Um, There hasn't been any information released by law enforcement regarding any sort of investigations, but I did find when he went missing in 2015 and they were doing their searches, they said that he had been diagnosed with depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and anxiety, and was off his medication. So I think at the time, in 2015 at least, they were leaning towards him going off on his own, but this one is still developing. It's like a... It's like a pro and a con story because like a a there's a there's a really like yay, you know, alive crying few words fetal position. That's not bruises and cuts. That's not this isn't gonna be good. Can't even like speculate as to what happened because there's so many possibilities and no. all of them are bad. Very happy that he's alive and I hope he gets all the treatment that he needs possible. You ready, Kate? All right. So mine's a little well. Yeah, I picked a really, okay. I just picked a, I feel like today's episode just messed me. A missing Minnesota woman is found dismembered and her boyfriend is charged with murder. So I found this one before we started today's episode. Sorry for the downer, but a missing Minnesota woman's remains were found in a storage unit and her boyfriend has been officially accused of killing and dismembering her. Joseph Stephen Jorgensen faces one count of second degree murder in connection to the death of his girlfriend, Manny Starin. Starin, she was 34, was reported missing in June after her family said they had not spoken with her in a few days, excuse me, since April, actually. So according to police, a security video taken near her house shows her running away from her apartment as her boyfriend chases her, grabs her, and pushes her back inside the apartment. There was no footage again of her ever leaving her apartment. So that kind of like to me was red flags immediately. Like you would think, I, I assume the boyfriend has been in custody this whole time. 
They just needed like specific proof of where she was on video camera. It is shown him chasing her, pulling her back to the apartment. And then there's no video of her ever leaving. That's not a good sign. Were they waiting like a warrant? I feel like that's like emergency circumstances to go inside the apartment. Right. But here, here we go. Is that a few days later, this is now a later footage that they apparently attained, not at the same time, showed the boyfriend carrying duffel bags and suitcases out of the apartment, placing them in a pickup truck that belonged to his roommate. It wasn't under his name. And then um, he got in the passenger seat of that car and drove away. So somebody else was in that truck as well. Well, they tracked the truck, went through all the videos, surveillances and whatnot, ends up leading to a storage unit, bada bing, bada boom. The woman, unfortunately, is found dismembered in a suitcase in a storage unit. So very sad story. I'm glad that her family has justice. He is definitely going to be prosecuted and convicted. If he isn't, that is some bullshit. You need to see his mugshot. Oh, jump scare. Yeah. And for those that can't see, um, but he is cuts, bruised, looks like strangulation. I mean, like it looks like nail marks on his neck, on his face, on his back. He's got this horrible stare going on. He has, it looks like he has been through hell. So I hope to God, his girlfriend, Manny, RIP, may she rest in peace. As horrible as the story is, she definitely put up a fight from what it looks like. That's unfortunately is my overtime story for today. Sorry, you guys. I forgive you. Holly? Okay. So for those of you that don't remember in episode 18, about a month ago, I covered the murder of Abigail Williams and Libby German, who were two 13 and 14 year old girls who were found dead in a park that they were, or a public trail that they were walking on. There were many suspects that could have been their killers. And eventually Richard Allen was arrested for their murder. He has now confessed to the murder no less than five times while talking to his wife and mother on public jail phones in the Indiana Department of State Corrections. Super interesting because I believe up until this point, he pled that he was completely innocent of the crime, but obviously changed his tune. I don't understand how people don't know by this point that every phone call is recorded. The wife definitely was like, oh no, this is not good. He's told me five times now that he was the killer of these two girls. So that's gotta be reassuring to the families of the girls, you know, that the right person is in jail because they went back and forth for a while of different suspects that it could be and glad that happened. No, that was a crazy story. That was, I'm really glad that this is, you know, coming to justice, especially for the young girls' families. Like that is just so sad. And God bless him for putting his own nail in his own coffin. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Richard. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.